Welcome to the Power of podcast series. In our collection, we dive into critical, thought-provoking and contemporary content to stimulate debate and dialogue, all with the aim of driving gender equality in global health. I'm Joanna Riha, a research fellow within the Gender and Health Hub at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health, based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. In this first episode, we focus on the power of evidence. Over the last 25 years, there have been bold commitments towards tackling gender inequalities in global health, but these commitments have not been met by commensurate shifts in the underlying structural or systemic drivers of these inequalities. Sadly, talk has often been a substitute for action. For example, the development of treatments, vaccines, diagnostics, and other forms of medical innovation to this very day continues to neglect the health of women and girls. And this is just one example which the COVID-19 pandemic has brought to the forefront. In this episode's conversation, we explore the misappropriation and misuse of gender transformative language and the negative impact this has had on addressing gender inequalities in global health. To start this conversation, we've invited Andrew Malhotra to join us. Andrew is a recognized leader on gender equality, reproductive health and adolescent rights, and currently principal visiting fellow at the UN University International Institute for Global Health. Until recently, Andrew was heading UNICEF's work on gender, guiding and building the organization's resources, commitment, capacity, and results on gender equality across geographies and program areas. Welcome, Andrew. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you, Joanna. Likewise, it's a pleasure to participate in the inaugural podcast for the Gender Hub. So, Andrew, before we begin sort of diving into the meteor content around this disconnect between gender transformative language and action in global health, could I start off by asking you, what does gender transformation mean for you? For me, Joanna, transformation is a very important word. It signifies fundamental change, and gender transformation, therefore, would signify fundamental change in gender power relations. This means that women have more say in and control over their own lives, but also in how the world runs. So I think of transformation as something very essential and large and big and momentous. Okay, that's an interesting answer. And I'm sure we'll be reflecting on it as we move through and discuss your think piece. So one of the main reasons we were keen to really have you here with us today to kick off this conversation is because you've recently published what I think is an extremely timely and very provocative think piece on the topic. And I would like to know why this particular topic of the disconnect between gender language, gender transformative language and action? And linked to that, maybe tell us a little bit about why now and who in the global health space should be reflecting critically on this disconnect. So Joanna, as we speak, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the landmark Beijing conference. And in many ways, I think we have to reflect on the progress that has been made, but also it's a promise that Beijing 
made, I think, or that we thought could be achieved in a couple of decades, but that has not happened. And I think especially for women in the global south, despite some of the improvements that have happened in their lives, we are still far from achieving the kind of change we envisioned at Beijing. So I think it's a time for deep reflection right now. And with what has happened with COVID, the world is facing so many challenges right now. There's so much disruptive, positive and negative change that I think it's an opportunity for us to really reflect how we are going to preserve some of the shifts that have happened on gender equality at this stage, but also prevent from backsliding, but really now accelerate, put that foot on the pedal in the way that we have not been able to. And it's because of that that the word transformation really came back to me, and I felt that we need to perhaps reflect back on what we wanted to do versus what has actually happened. I think that's such an important point to make, particularly as you're saying, where we're at at the moment with COVID, but also 25 years since Beijing. So this is an extremely timely piece. I guess my next question to you, Andrew, is whether you could walk us through or tell us a little bit about, you know, more of the detail in terms of the key arguments and points you're making in your think piece around this juncture between the gender transformative language and action, lack of action or incommensurate action on the other hand. Certainly. I guess I would say that my main premise is that the increasingly widespread and ubiquitous use of the term gender transformative to convey a commitment to gender equality in the health sector particularly, the programs and institutions that are using this language now, on the one hand, we would think that this is a good thing. We should be celebrating that so many programs and institutions are using this language. But I worry that the use of this language is very hollow and therefore it's a cause for concern rather than celebration. And that is because this very powerful term of gender transformation has been misappropriated, I believe, to convey a lofty intention that is not accompanied by the necessary structural and systemic shifts that can be genuinely assigned a transformative label. So gender transformation should not be something that we're currently using as a self-congratulatory tool to show that we care about gender equality, but it should be something that is demonstrated by the very solid and fundamental actions that we're taking to achieve that kind of change. And we're nowhere close to that kind of scope and scale and depth of interventions and resources that are needed to get the transformative change. So I think it was a good intention when this language was first created, because many feminists in particular were trying to get away from the tick box exercise that gender mainstreaming had led to and wanted people to step up and do more. I worry that we've gone back and sort of now made gender transformative a tick box exercise. There's a lot of talk about the gender continuum, gender blind versus gender aware programs and gender accommodative versus gender transformative programs. 
but I'm not sure that it's really helping us to get where we need to be going. And I think that mainly this is because those of us working in the gender world or the gender and health world are still swimming in the kiddie pool while the real space for moving forward, more progressive gender equitable health systems is in that Olympic size pool to which we neither seek entry nor are we gaining it. Thanks, Anju. Could you elaborate a little bit more on this and explain you know, why this is the case? Why this shift hasn't occurred, why we haven't managed to gain entry into the Olympic size pool and what it would require? Yeah, I mean, I can speculate based on some of the analysis that we have been doing, both on the institutional and the programmatic front. But I think that it's when all the major multilateral mechanisms, UN agencies, Gavi, Global Financing Facility, governments, donors, programs, and even gender experts are using the gender transformative language. Most of this work that's labeled gender transformative is being done at the periphery rather than at the center of health systems, institutions, and infrastructures. So that's what I mean by the kiddie pool versus the Olympic-sized pool that we need to be a part of. There's also this tendency to think of change occurring among women and communities and men and society. And therefore, a lot of the solutions we seek for gender integration in health tend to be point to working with communities, changing people's ideas, changing women, changing men, changing society, but not focusing on changing the health system and the health infrastructure and the health building blocks and the health financing. And so I think that debt differentiation is not just because of the resistance, but it's also that we have bought into, as feminists also, that we have advocated a certain approach. And I think we need to revisit that thinking. Can I just jump in and ask Anju, what are some of the issues related to community-oriented programs? There's nothing wrong with doing community-oriented programs. They do need to be done. But the way we're doing them is usually very small, small scale, with very uncertain financing. We get a little bit of donor money. We try to do a program. They're usually short-term. And then we have multiple outcomes, none of which we're very clear if they collate across different studies and what can we say. We often have very equivocal outcomes. Some things work, some things don't. And a little bit of stuff gets taken to scale, but most of it does not. And then we're assessing our success by what's intentional rather than what's the outcome. So we're defining programs and policies as gender transformative by what they intend to do. Now, what you intend to do is not necessarily what happens. There are many things that people intend to do that don't pan out as we expect. And for gender, this is often the case because there are often mixed outcomes. In fact, there are many times very negative outcomes to what we intend. You know, we might engage men thinking that we are going to create better marital relations and more communications and support for women 
in accessing healthcare, and sometimes that happens. But in other cases, engaging men means women's confidentiality and privacy is violated, or they're subject to violence or other kinds of threat because now men are part of a space that women had not wanted them to be in. So intentionality is a very uncertain space. And similarly, there are other unintentional things that are happening in the health system, some of which are having terrible negative consequences, but other things that happen that may have very positive consequences. There are new innovations in technology, some of which are very bad for women, but some of which are very good. And for example, medical innovation, but rather we tend to work in community spaces. And I think we need to really broaden our thinking about the kind of health spaces we need to work in, and we need to seek entrance to the very fundamental aspects of the health building blocks. I think, yeah, you've touched on so many interesting points. Is there a danger of discrediting a lot of the hard work actually being done by very well-intentioned actors who misuse gender transformative language? And I think linked to your point about intentionality, I guess I would like to pose the question, isn't there a value in focusing on intentions? Yes, let me start with intentionality first. I think intentionality is very important. I think we can't rely on things getting better accidentally, right? So we do need to have very deliberate intentions to, for more fundamental change. But intentionality is not enough, the execution and the outcomes matter as well. We're not systematically assessing if something was transformative in retrospect. Instead, we are only calling something transformative prospectively, and we need to change that dynamic. The second point raised here, I very much hope that a critique like this will be seen as a healthy opportunity for self-reflection and meaningful discussion, debate, and innovation rather than as an attack or an effort to discredit. In fact, I mean, who am I to discredit or attack such a thing? Because I was very much part of the movement that led to, you know, language like gender transformation. It's not easy this is a very difficult task. I mean, if it was so easy to change gender inequality, we would have done it already, right? So there's pushback. It's very embedded. It's difficult. So we will do many things that we think are good. And it was well-intentioned because organizations weren't stepping up. They were doing, quote-unquote, gender-blind programs. I think it's really important that we ourselves reflect back and say why that didn't work. Because if we don't question ourselves, who will? How will we move forward without questioning ourselves? And I guess linked to that point, Anju, is the large amount of work that has taken place on, you know, vis-a-vis -vis social norms, tackling social norms in the health space or in the broader community. What you're saying is that that work is important, however, it's not necessarily sufficient. And it's this move from an individual focus affecting communities to actually looking at the health system. How does the health system have to change to be able to address these gender inequalities? Absolutely. And I think that 
I can give you a concrete example of what I'm thinking about. We have many norm change programs that try to give women more negotiating power, that try to help them to understand their rights better, that try to help them inform what they can do. Similarly, we have male engagement programs that try to make men better partners, understand men's perspective, try to change norms that way or work with other family members, social leaders, and so forth. And all that, I think, is important. Let's just consider, for example, a woman who needs contraception, and she's had one child. She doesn't want for another two or three years at least to have a child. And she lives in a country where basically take an India or a Pakistan, for example, where sterilization is the most prominent method. And temporary methods are offered in very unsystematic, very limited ways, and not necessarily consistently in different locations. Let's say you successfully made this woman more self-aware and a better negotiator. Let's say she is also able to interact with her husband and has his support. But what does her choice mean if her only option is to get a pill packet from her local community health worker who may or may not be able to give it to her every month and she has negative reactions to the pill packet or she can go get sterilized at the age of 22 or 23. Have we really transformed anything for her? Have we given her any real choices? What is required is for that system to shift to be able to give her a serious menu of contraceptive options when she needs them in line with her needs and safely. This is where the supply side matters and we have so few interventions coming from the supply side. We have so little investment on that side. It's a fact that we have a COVID vaccine disseminated and women are having menstrual issues and where was the testing? Where is the data that is telling us what does that mean? And should we be worried or should we not be worried? Where were the analyses? It's the fact that the workforce, the community health workforce is so heavily female, so underpaid, so poorly trained, so poorly supported. These are the things that we need to be looking at. We need to be looking at where the financing is coming from, how decentralized funding is getting spent, who is making the decisions, who are the leaders who decide policies on gender and health. So the entire building block of what we call health systems, from medical products and technologies to data and systems. So we know all these things exist. We have information on these very, very important gaps, but we haven't been focusing a much larger share of our attention to it. In essence, there's no simple solution. It's clear that more action is required in the health system space. Given 
This podcast series is about keeping the conversation going, looking at analyses from different perspectives. At the same time, we very much want to make sure that it doesn't just turn into a talk shop, but actually can help translate into actionable change that will ha have impact. Do you have any suggestions of how we could do this? Absolutely. I think that we do need to take concrete steps. And I can think of three concrete steps that would be really helpful for moving this conversation forward and really help change the dynamic we have been locked into. To begin with, we really need to define success in terms of outcomes achieved rather than intentions. As I've said, intentions are important and we definitely should be programming with the intention to shift gender equality goals, but we have to hold ourselves accountable for the results we achieve rather than the intentions. The second thing I think we can do is have realistic theories of change. We need to look at both optimistic and pessimistic scenarios. We need to look at the realities of how the change may and may not happen. If in 20 years we haven't been able to achieve success with certain ideas that are cherished ideas, then we need to revisit them and start looking at the realities of the programming and see what are the difficulties. Why haven't they gone to scale? Why haven't they been sustainable? And for this, certainly donor-funded programs The donors themselves need to have more patience, but we also need to recognize that donor-funded programs are not what is going to achieve transformative change. And we need to mobilize money that's from domestic financing so that the change is sustainable. And last but the most important, I think, recommendation that I would have is that we focus much more on changing health systems for gender equality rather than the other way around. And there, I think we need to zone in, in every given context on those aspects of the health system that are not just essential to change, but that are ripe for change, given political momentum, civil society activism, budgetary allocations, and other pressures that are going to help us shift those systemic issues. And To do this, gender experts and health experts committed to system change will have to learn to work together as equals. Collaborations where leadership and expertise on gender equality in health and that on health systems gets equal billing, equal respect, recognition, and resources need to be developed and executed so that we can have an agenda that is really, really powerful. That's what's going to make the real difference. Let's hear what a few others thought of Anju's think piece. Jennifer McCleary-Sills is a social and behavioral scientist with more than 20 years of experience designing and evaluating international development projects. Until very recently, she was the Senior Program Officer for Gender Equality at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where she's led efforts to integrate gender into investment since 2016. So what resonated most for me is really the main thesis here, that the adoption of gender transformative rhetoric isn't matched by sufficient investment, and that's investment in programming, in staffing, and really investment in political will to make the internal shifts that an institution needs in order for their programming and their work to be truly gender transformative. 
For example, everyone, as Anju mentions in the piece, wants the transformative label but isn't really willing to invest in programming differently, to doing their work differently and expecting longer periods of time before transformation can take place. And that's just a big challenge that we've seen across the board in this work over decades now. I think language is incredibly important, as this piece points out, but it's not just about what we call programs or what we say they'll achieve. Rather, it's about our expectations and and how we lay those expectations on gender and health programs or on health programming. We, as funders, as researchers, as advocates and policymakers, we just need to be realistic about what it takes to bring on this sort of transformation and then admit really, whether or not we're willing to commit the resources and make the structural and often personnel changes that are required to make space for this transformation to happen. Next, we hear from Gita Rao Gupta, the mind behind the gender continuum which she presented in her speech at the 13th International AIDS Conference in Durban in the year 2000. Gita has over three decades of experience on gender and development and has been a pioneering leader in the field. She is currently Senior Fellow at the United Nations Foundation in Washington, D.C., and a Senior Advisor to CoImpact, a global collaborative philanthropy. In the year 2000, I was the one who actually got us started down this pathway of we need to think about different stages and different ways of responding. The whole purpose of this continuum was to make it more practical and simple for health practitioners to know what to do in order to respond to gender gaps and gender dynamics. I feel that the use of this continuum in describing and sort of advocating for interventions within health systems has sort of been used without a full understanding of what exactly is needed to be done. I actually feel that it's health systems that need to transform for gender equality rather than for women and men to transform for health systems, which is how gender transformative has been defined so far. I think we need to hold on to the reality that ultimately for gender equality, you need a shift in the balance of power. And so within health, the things that health systems can do in order to be more responsive should be done without a pressure If we can come up with the evidence that shows the three or four things, like community health workers that can get out there to help meet women's health needs, like transportation and cost and timings of services. I mean, simple things that we know work, that treating a woman with dignity and providing her full information. If we can make a list of those things and say, just implement those, (laughs) I think that may be a good way forward having worked on this issue for 30 years in many different sectors, not just in health, I have reached the conclusion that ultimately what you need is more women having the ability to make decisions and to be able to be in positions of power to shape policies and programs. It means that you shift the balance of power, that it's not just men making all the decisions and that, and it's not just any women, but it's women that represent a range of the diversity of women. So I'm talking about the intersecting characteristics that have also been used to discriminate, right, against different, whether it's based on class or race or sexual identity. 
our gender identity, you know, keeping all of those, our ability, keeping all those in mind, how can we get greater representation of the diverse populations that health systems seek to serve in positions of power? Because then I think services will meet the needs of a greater number of people. In the next episode, we'll focus specifically on this theme of health systems transformation for gender equality and explore what it looks like from multiple perspectives and geographies, hearing from fantastic colleagues in Cambodia, Benin and South Africa. Join us next time to keep challenging ourselves to think, to question, to do more, to do better, to tackle gender inequalities and improve health outcomes for all. In the meantime, you can visit us on our website at www.iigh.unu.edu or at the Gender and Health Hub website at www.genderhealthhub.org. You can also visit us on Twitter at UNU underscore IIGH or our Gender and Health Hub Twitter, which is at Gender Health Hub. And send us your feedback and suggestions via email. Our email address is iigh-info at unu.edu. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time. This is a podcast recording by the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. The views expressed are those of the speakers only.